Acts 21. I'm going to read verses 15 through 19, and then um, we'll be studying down through verse 26 today. Paul has been warned constantly through his travels through Asia Minor on his way to Jerusalem that troubles would await him there. And so a storm is brewing for the Apostle Paul. But the warnings were turning into pleadings that he not go. But Paul would say time and again, I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And so after even the companions of Paul were pleading with him not to go, they had to succumb to the fact that Paul was going to do what he believed God was calling him to do. And so in verse 15 we pick up here and it says, And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of opening your word, to read it, to read it with devotion, to receive it, Lord, with your wisdom and understanding. For this we ask for the blessing of your Spirit, the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon every mind and heart in this room today. Lord, bring us to a greater understanding. Instruct us, Lord God, through the life of this great apostle that you called. An apostle, Lord God, who considered himself bound to you to serve you even unto death. But from all of this, Lord God, may we be encouraged by his courage and enlightened by the light of your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I entitled this message, The Qualm Before the Storm. And I did so because I think most of us are quite familiar with the expression, the calm before the storm. That particular expression suggests 
a quiet, uh, peaceful interlude of time before a period of activity or even trouble. We might wonder where that calm would be in the continuing account of Paul's journeys. Already we have seen the Apostle face a concerned and and growing objection from many in the Gentile churches as well as his own traveling companions to his desire to go to Jerusalem. But when he passionately states his heart's commitment to Christ, when he says in verse 13 of this chapter, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart or weakening my resolve to be obedient to God? What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. While all his companions and the rest could do was to cease with their unpersuasive arguments and trust in the will of God. Well, at this point, there may have been some calm. Now that they resigned to this passion of Paul's, maybe there was calm now. And certainly the storm was in Jerusalem, so this may have been that calm before the storm. Luke describes their activities and preparation for their journey to Jerusalem. He tells us here in verse 15 that they packed their things, their carriages as it were, the King James. They packed their belongings. Literally, though, that word there means that they were just getting ready. They were getting ready. Remember that Paul said, I am ready not only to be bound. He says, I'm ready. So if they're going to accompany Paul, they need to get ready just like Paul was. And so they began to get ready. They readied their things. They, they were getting their effects ready in order so that they would be as ready as Paul to face the coming storm. I think there's a lot of wisdom, even in that one little statement, for each and every one of us that have storms to face in the days ahead. Our storms may all be different. We'll all have individual storms. As a church, I'm sure we'll have collective storms to deal with. As we see a growing tide uh, against the, the, the church and the Word of God and the body of Christ. But there are storms that we will all have to face. But I think it's important to know that we ought to get ready for that storm. Usually in that time of getting ready, there's a calm. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, it's a peace. But it's a peace that we will not only have with us as we get ready, it's a peace that we'll have as we go through the storm. Let's never forget that. But here they were getting things ready to to go with Paul to Jerusalem. And we certainly uh, can commend Paul's companions as well as the others from Caesarea who would join them in going to Jerusalem. We commend them for going. 
I mean, if all of a sudden they hear and they see Agabus the prophet binding Paul's uh, uh, belt around his hands and his feet and saying whoever owns his belt is going to be bound there in Jerusalem, some might say, well, Paul, I'm going to pray for you. You go and we'll stay and pray. But they went. They chose to go with Paul. And this is a testament, listen, this is a testament to the courage that Paul displayed and became a motivating factor for these men. Their fears didn't affect him. Their fears did not affect Paul. Rather, his courage motivated them. They knew that Paul would be a marked man in Jerusalem. They'd been hearing it all along the road. All along the journey, all along their travels, in every church that they would get to, someone would say, Paul, here's a prophecy. It's about you getting in trouble in Jerusalem. Don't go. Well, the prophecy was there's trouble in Jerusalem. The prophecy wasn't don't go. (laughs) That was their choice to tell him. Paul would be a marked man in Jerusalem. They knew that he would face hatred. They knew that he would be in prison. They even had a belief that he would possibly face death. They knew that by identifying with him, they put themselves at risk. Still, they were willing to accept that risk because Paul accepted that risk. And I'm here to tell you, we may have to face that very same thing in the days that we live, Simply being Christians. Simply being followers of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to take that risk to be identified with Jesus Christ? Well, I tell you this, courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. We're not talking about the courage of the cowardly lion. We're talking about courage that comes from God. That's contagious. Especially if it is fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. On his 120th birthday, and I'm talking about Pastor Tom. He just celebrated his birthday. I had to throw that in there, right? I had to throw it in there. On his 120th birthday, Moses, whom he might have known, I don't know, but... On his 120th birthday, Moses, in speaking to the children of Israel of how the Lord was going to go before them to destroy the nations they would face after crossing the Jordan, this is what he said in Deuteronomy 31, verses 5 through 8. He said, The Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all of Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with His people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. You know, Joshua had, 
He, he had an example living before him. It was Moses. Who did not fear. Because he knew the Lord was with him. And when Moses was taken out of the scene and in Joshua chapter 1, now the Lord himself speaks to Joshua. And it says in verse 6 of Joshua 1, be strong and of good courage, speaking directly to Joshua, be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. How can you not have courage when God says, listen, be courageous because I'm going with you. Be courageous because you won't be alone. I'll be with you. Don't fear nor be dismayed because I'll be with you. That's biblical courage, folks. God doesn't kick you out there and says, all right, be courageous. Let me know how it goes. That's not God. Because God knows us. He knows what we're made of. He says, I'll go with you. That encourages me. Isn't it interesting how the word courage is found in encouragement? But if we're not keeping our eyes on the Lord, we can get discouraged. I think we better keep our eyes on the Lord and be encouraged, which literally means to be in courage because God is with us. Now, one of those that came along with a group from Caesarea was a man named Manasseh, and his participation was certainly to be helpful to Paul. Manasseh was more than likely a Hellenistic Jewish Christian who, like Barnabas, was from Cyprus and probably received Christ after Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Obviously, from the text, Manasseh now lived in or near Jerusalem, and this gave Paul a place to stay upon his arrival. We're told there that uh, they would lodge with him. Therefore, as he's going with them, obviously he had a place near Jerusalem. And this would give Paul a place to stay since Paul coming back to Jerusalem, if people knew that Paul was around, if he doesn't get to the church in time, <laughs> could be in a lot of trouble. So at least he had that uh, place to stay. And Manasseh shows the hospitality of a believer in the Lord. And one other thing that we cannot forget about Paul's desire to get to Jerusalem is that he had yet to deliver the offering that had been collected throughout the uh, travels that he had in Asia Minor for the poor who were suffering in Judea. Uh, 
you know, we can go all the way back actually to chapter 11 and pick up from there and realize that this is what he was starting to do, is to pick up all of these collections so he could bring it back to Judea because the church was going through a famine. They were going through all kinds of struggles. And, and they wanted to bless the church in Judea because Judea had sent out the gospel so that they could hear it. So uh, in Romans chapter 15, Paul says in verse 25, But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. And so here we see another part of the picture that we didn't want to neglect uh, in seeing why Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem. And so we may be in a sense of calm now. We know there's a storm coming, but there's a calm. But we're going to go from, from calm to qualm in a very short time. Notice in verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. So far, so good. Sounds like it's calming here. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. James being the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. So far, that's pretty good. Calm. But something changes when they speak to Paul. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads, and that word myriads reflects a, a large number of people. And most Bible historians believe that at that particular time there may have been anywhere from 20 to, to 25,000 Jewish believers in and around Jerusalem and in Judea. He says, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews... There are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. You know the word forsake there literally is the word apostasia. He's telling them to apostatize Moses, in a sense, you know, to fall away from the things of Moses, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Now, we all know that the storm was coming. All the warnings were given to Paul throughout most, if not all, the churches along the way. As I mentioned before, prophets like Agabus made that clear to the apostle. And the calm was sensed, I'm sure, on the 65-mile route between Caesarea and Jerusalem. And upon arriving in Jerusalem and being greeted as they were, the calm seemed even more comforting as the travelers were received gladly. Paul visited with James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was now the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But then we see something interesting here. What's interesting is the mention of elders and not apostles. It says that the elders were present. An early church tradition says that the apostles by this time were already scattered, spreading the gospel in many different directions. 
And so after greeting James and these elders, Paul gave them a detailed account. And when I say a detailed account, it was almost a journal of a day by day, event by event, moment by moment account of everything that God did through the Apostle Paul in the Gentile churches. Specifically, everything that happened since his last meeting with them at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And there's something to understand and to learn and to know about the Apostle Paul in this particular presentation. And what it is that we learn is that he was a humble man. He was a humble servant of Jesus Christ. Because humbly Paul gives all the credit and all the glory to the Lord and he saw himself only as an instrument that God graciously called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He saw himself as the instrument. God is the one to receive the power and the glory and the honor and the praise. We see that when he writes in Romans 15 verse 18, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. He says in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. God gave him the grace. He who was the less than the least of the saints, as he puts it. And in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, Paul writes, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. We have a lot to learn about humility, and we have a lot to learn about humility through the Apostle Paul. For Paul never took, the, he never took uh, the, um, the credit. Paul never took the glory. Paul never sought the credit. And Paul never sought the glory. Paul gave it all to Jesus. He gave it all to the Lord. But when we get now to verse 20, the calm turns into a qualm. Now, let's define qualm. A qualm is defined as a misgiving, a pang of conscience, a sudden feeling of sickness or faintness. It has the sense of doubt and apprehensiveness. It has the sense of uneasiness and foreboding. Everything was going so well. It was so calm. We know there's a storm coming. This must have been the calm before the storm, but now there's a qualm before the storm. There's a little uneasiness. There's a little doubt. There's some apprehensiveness. There was probably feelings of sickness and faintness with this particular thing that they said unto Paul. I mean, they go from glorifying the Lord, as we see in verse 20, to saying, Brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who believe they are all zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. You know, I've always liked this little rhyme. Uh, not because it sounds cute, but because it's so true. Here is the rhyme. 
Living with saints above, that will be glory. Living with saints below, that's another story. Yeah, when we say, yeah, we'll be in heaven worshiping the Lord. Yeah, praise the Lord, we'll be in heaven. But right now is where we need to be living like we're in heaven, but sometimes we don't do that. There's nothing like false rumor to make your day. And that's what was happening to Paul. I mean, he had to have felt like he got sucker punched right in the gut. I don't know if you've ever been sucker punched, but it's not a good feeling. If you know somebody's going to hit you, you get ready for it. But he didn't know they were going to hit him. We glorify the Lord. But we got some things to talk about that are being said about you. Pooh! There wasn't even any time for Paul to catch his breath. Because this was a serious situation that Paul was confronted with. That many in the church and even in his leadership were concerned that Paul was against the Jewish customs the, Jews, uh, the Jewish believers still valued. They believed in Jesus, but they valued the customs. But this could mean trouble in Jerusalem, where the storm was brewing. So now we have to ask the questions. Did he actually teach this or did he not? Did he actually teach what they are saying about him? That he taught to forsake Moses? That he taught that the children should not be uh, circumcised? That he taught that... Uh, uh, they weren't to walk according to those customs any longer. Did he teach that? What had Paul actually taught? Well, we go to the Word of God to see that. For this is what Paul taught. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Paul taught this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul said was, Christ is the goal of the law. Christ is the finish line of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And of course, if you add that to his complete thought in the book of Romans, it is that for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. But it is this statement, for Christ is the end of the law, the goal of the law, the finish line of the law. The law takes us right straight to Christ. He taught also that once the Christian faith had come, believing Jews were no longer under the law. That is what he taught. We see that when he writes in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. Listen carefully. Paul says, but before faith came, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And very simply here, to be justified by faith is to be brought to salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. So, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, notice what he says, after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the law, but under grace. 
Then he says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You're no longer a slave. Born under the law, being under the law, you would be a slave to sin, to death. You had to be dependent upon the law, but the law leads you to Christ. If you come to Christ, guess what? You're no longer under the law. So that's the other thing that Paul taught. He taught that once the, faith, the Christian faith had come to a person, believing Jews were no longer under the law. Now he taught also that if a man receives circumcision, now listen carefully to this, if a man receives circumcision as a means of obtaining justification, then such a man cut himself off from salvation in Jesus Christ. Did you understand what I said? That if a man receives circumcision as a means of obtaining justification, which means as a means of being saved. That you, you know, I'm not saved unless I'm circumcised, in other words. If a man receives circumcision as a means of obtaining justification, then such a man cut himself off from salvation in Jesus Christ. In Galatians, in the same book, Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, Paul says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, now notice how he says this, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. If you become circumcised for the sake of being saved or justified. If you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. If they were circumcised, certainly the circumcision was for the Jew, to the Jewish person, so that they would be a debtor to the whole law. They, that was their saying, we're cutting ourselves off of the world and cutting the world off of us so that we will be faithful to the law. That's what circumcision was saying. By the way, do you remember that Paul encouraged Timothy to be circumcised? See, that, that, that's an important thought here. But what he's saying biblically and what he's saying theologically is this, that if, uh, if a person is circumcised on those particular terms, he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Isn't it interesting that the context of falling from grace has to do with this issue? of seeking to do things on the outward to be saved. Now, we're going to add that, that passage in 1 Corinthians 7 at this point. That's where we'll put it. But if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 7 real quickly, these weren't in my notes, but I, I just wanted to add this because this is what Paul says. And you might keep your finger there because I might come back to this at the end. But, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter, six, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verses 17 through 19, Paul says, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? In other words, were you called into Christ uh, while circumcised? Well, let him not become uncircumcised. Don't become uncircumcised in the flesh. You know, in other words, don't go back into the flesh. And then he says, was anyone called while uncircumcised? Were you called before you became circumcised? He says, well, let him not be circumcised. Why? Because you've come to Christ. 
And that's, you know, you've come to uh, uh, faith in him. And then he says this, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And we'll come back to that in a moment, so just kind of keep your finger there. But this is what he says about circumcision. So what Paul taught was that if a man receives circumcision for the sake of being saved, he says, well, that, that cuts himself off from salvation in Christ. That's what he taught. And then we move on to another thing. Paul taught that to return to the types and the shadows of the law after Jesus had come was dishonoring to Christ. That if we return to the types and the shadows, the Jews were given all of the types and the shadows in the Old Testament, in the law, in the Torah, in, in the writings of the prophets, in the writings of, of, of the, po- uh, the books of poetry and all. I mean, the types and the shadows were continual from Genesis all the way through Chronicles, as well as the prophets, Malachi. But they were types and shadows. They weren't the substance. Paul says in Colossians that Christ is the substance. So Paul says that if you return to the types and shadows of the law, after Jesus had come, then that's dishonoring to Christ. If it is just to go and focus on the the, the law and focus on the types and to focus on the shadows alone and not on Christ, who is the substance or the... You know, you can the subs, you can see him, you can touch him, you feel him. You know, you, you, you know, instead of going to the shadow. So he says in Galatians chapter two, verse fifteen, he says, "We who are Jews by nature." So Paul is including himself with the people. He says, "We who are Jews by nature, are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ." He's stating a truth that is for all of us. But to the Jew especially, he said, we know that we're not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That's Old Testament, folks. And then he says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? He says, God forbid, certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. Then he gives that great statement in in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live By faith I live, or the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If righteousness comes through the law, then Jesus died in vain. He didn't have to die, in other words, if we can be righteous by the law. This is what Paul taught. So in view of all of these things, still, it isn't hard to see why the Jews would think of Paul as as they did. Oh, he's telling us to forsake Moses. He didn't say that. 
Time and again, what does he tell us? In, in, for example, even in the book of 1 Corinthians, he'll, he'll teach us there that, that the things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our learning. That's not forsaking Moses. But that's how they perceived it. And so the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they decided to tell Paul, listen, we have a plan. I'd like to call it a scheme. They have a plan. Notice verse 22, going back to Acts 21. What then, he says, the, uh, the, the assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. And look at verse 23. Therefore do what we tell you. Now, stop there and just look at that phrase for just a moment. Therefore do what we tell you. I don't see any place where they prayed. I don't see even when they say, you know, the Spirit is telling us to tell you. I don't see that. I mean, look carefully what he says. Do what we tell you. We got a plan. Now, we're Christians. We're good people. We have good intentions. Paul, this might work. We have a plan. Folks, what does that tell you? Don't make plans, in other words, and then eventually say, what a beautiful plan this is. I'm going to take this to the Lord and say, Lord, look at my beautiful plan. And God says, but you never asked me what my plan is. My plan is even more beautiful. See, we're quick to make plans and then pray when we should pray and make God's plans ours. So I struggle with this statement. Therefore, we uh, do what we tell you. But notice what they say. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. In other words, pay for their haircuts. And that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Now, some people have thought if, if Paul's response could be, you know, while well, it's in his mind, if his response could be echoed out or vocalized, it would be, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? But let's, let's examine a little further what it says, what, what Luke tells us here. They give them the plan or the scheme. But then they re, repeat something that was given to Paul back in the uh, Jerusalem council in Acts 15. They say, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we're not worried about them in other words. We have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. We touched on that back in chapter 15. So what is it that the church is saying to them? Well, they advised Paul to take upon himself a Jewish vow and to sponsor four Christian Jews who were themselves fulfilling a vow of consecration. We don't know why, but they were fulfilling this particular vow. Now, by this... Paul would show the community of Christian Jews in Jerusalem that he was not opposed to their continued observance of certain Jewish customs, though he did not require any such observance of Gentiles who came to Christ. You know, Paul had Timothy get circumcised for a reason, 
But he didn't make Titus, who was a Gentile, get circumcised. You see? That's something to remember here. And the vow itself was, was probably similar to the Nazarite vow that Paul took back in Acts 18. Let me uh, bring to re- your remembrance of verse 18. It says, So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. Paul actually had taken a vow. But the question many ask is this. Why did Paul agree to take this vow and sponsor the other four men? Because you know he did. He agreed to do this. I, I've read a lot of commentaries about this particular passage, and a lot of, lot of, lot of commentators, good commentators too, you know, are saying, you know, that we, we, we can't consider that Paul is, is without sin. You know, that Paul is a, a human. He, he's, he, you know, he... Uh, uh, is a man of like passions like we are. You know, Paul can make mistakes, and we think that Paul may have just made a mistake here. You know, they, they, they look at the fact that, you know, well, now after this particular incident, Paul doesn't have the success. You know, we talked about this last week. Paul didn't have the success as he did in all of his missionary journeys. Well, Paul had troubles in those times too. But they say, why did he agree? Did he really compromise his faith? Did he really compromise his position? Why would Paul go along with a vow that was obviously taken to take care of some ritual uncleanness? Well, let me interject here. That if you were in the the mind of Paul at a time when you are going back to Jerusalem, one thing that you would want the Jews to see is that you weren't afraid to go in the temple to, you know, to let them know, if I've been ritually unclean, I want to be clean in your eyes so that I can tell you about Jesus. I'm just saying, get into Paul's head for just a moment there with me. But let me give you the simple answer to that question. The simple answer is, in other words, to the question, why did Paul agree? The simple answer is that he did so to demonstrate that he never taught Christian Jews to forsake Moses and not to circumcise their children. Nor did he teach that they should ignore Jewish customs. He didn't teach that. He taught the truth about Jesus and how the law now you know, has pointed us to Christ. So Christ has fulfilled the law. This is what he taught. But in a sense, he was showing that he was showing them that their ceremonies were useless but not destructive. Their ceremonies were useless but not destructive. Paul took a vow, he shaved his head. Paul had Timothy get circumcised. There were reasons. But he said, those ceremonies, those customs are only dangerous when you depend on them for salvation. Those customs are only dangerous when you depend upon them for salvation and justification in Christ. 
or just for justification period. What we need to get to is the motive behind Paul's submission to their request. And it's beautifully laid out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So turn, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 9. So turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 9. Now if you kept your finger in 1 Corinthians 7, it's just two chapters away. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 7. We may come back to that. So listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19. Because now we're getting to the motive as to why Paul did what he did in in, in doing what they asked him. Or what they suggested anyway. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, being of course the Gentiles, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. I want to be partakers with you of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to be a a partaker with my people Israel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to be a partaker of the gospel of Jesus Christ with Gentiles who need to know that they are lost forever without Christ. So I will become as a Jew that I might win Jews. As under the law to win those who are under the law. As without law, in the sense not toward God, but just not having a law, so that I might win them to Christ. And I become as weak to win the weak. I become all things to all men. That that little phrase there has been so misrepresented at times. You know, we you know, some people have used it to say, Oh, listen, I'll become as all things to all men, so I'm gonna go into all the bars and sit there and drink with everybody and then eventually, you know, hopefully God keeps my head within me. Hopefully I'll tell them about Jesus, you know. You don't become all things to all men that way. That's compromise. Paul did not compromise. And in answer to his critics who tend to believe Paul compromised his faith in Christ, let me read to you what he writes in Romans 14 verse 1 when he says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Now I'd encourage you to read chapters 14 and 15 today as your homework, but, but, but just, just because of time, jump down to verse 7. It says, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. 
Paul knew that. That's just how Paul went into this whole thing. I belong to the Lord. I want to win people to Christ. If this is what it takes for me to show them that I am not forsaking Moses and not doing these things, I do this because I'm not compromising what I believe and what I've taught. And then he says in verse 12, So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Can you imagine doing something and saying, Well, I know I'm accountable, but I don't care. No, he cared. Because he had to be accountable before God. So he wouldn't enter into a situation without the knowledge of his giving an account. And then if you go to Romans 15 for just a moment, verses 1 through 4, he says, We then who are strong ought to, ought to bear the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. And he uses Jesus as his own example. He says, not even Christ pleased himself as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Paul makes it very clear. He never compromises his faith. He never compromises what he has taught. He never compromises what he believed. And lastly, as we said, no rules were to be imposed on Gentile believers other than those proposed at the Jerusalem Council. In verse 25, But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. That had been agreed upon in chapter 15 already. But it's at this point that between 25 and 26 where Paul says that he took them in and he did this, that it brings to mind that chapter again that I read earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Because again, we see here Paul's heart. He says, as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, let him walk. And so I ordained in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Because he says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but keeping the commandments of God. That's what matters. So that's what mattered to Paul in taking these men. And, and let's read verse 26. Paul took the men and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. That would mean the seven days... And next time we're together in this particular chapter, we'll, we'll kind of go over that just so you'll know what, what, what this is, because it is very important to lead into the next portion of Scripture. But just to, to cut it short here, they entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, which would be seven days, at the end of seven days, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. This is where it gets a little tricky here for Paul, because Paul would never offer another offering because one offering had already been made for all by Jesus. That is why when we get to verse 27, we see God intervene for Paul. Now we might not like the way he intervened, but well, we'll get to that when we get to it. The important thing is that even God helps Paul to keep his faithfulness and his commitment to Christ. But again, we'll talk about that later. 
And what comes to mind at this point as we get ready to close, what comes to mind at this point are the words of Paul concerning his great love for his people Israel and what he would gladly do that they would come to know their Messiah. Romans 9 verse 3, we've read it many times. Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. If, if, if I were put into a position where I am condemned away from Christ so that my brethren would come, then I would gladly do that. He was ready to go ahead and take these four young men to this vow of purification and this vow of consecration, even to the point of what takes place after this. And you can read that. I'm not telling you not to read verse 27 and following. You should. You should read it a hundred times and we can study it together when we get together next. But the point is, this is the heart of Paul. I, wish that I, I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. It's a tremendous lesson we want to close with. Because it comes back to what Paul said when he said, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die for the name of Jesus Christ. It has to do with a, with a calm, with a qualm, and with a storm. The calms in your life, the qualms in your life, and the storms in your life. Because I believe that as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, we can see how he handles these things. As a man of like passions, he struggles just like we do. He struggled with, with things like we do. But understand this. Fear neither the calm before the storm, or the qualm before the storm. My encouragement to you is fear neither the calm before the storm or the qualm before a storm. But above all, don't fear the storm either. Don't fear it. Take courage, my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Take courage. Because when we take the courage that God gives us, it comes with Him. It comes with the presence of Christ. It comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. It comes with everything God said He would give us if we are His people. Don't fear the storm. Don't fear it. Bless Him for the storm. Why? Because when He gets us through it, He will have built us up in hope, in perseverance, in patience, in power, and His grace. And as the Lord did with Paul in taking him through the storm, so shall He do with and for you. And I want to leave you with just one verse of Scripture in the Old Testament. It's the book of Nahum. In the Spanish it's Naum. Nahum. Chapter 1, verse 3. And it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. But notice this. The Lord has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm. Folks, the Lord has His way in your storm and in your life where you face these storms. The calm before the storm is nothing to worry about. The qualm before the storm. There's nothing to fear. The storm itself 
God says, I'll be with you. I'll take you through it. And I'll show you in the blessing in just a moment that He does. Shall we pray?